right, now, brothers and sisters, it's time to take out our Bibles with one another. And if you will, turn with me today to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31 here in just a moment. A great philosopher of our age once said, the best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees because I need money. Practically, right? I need, that, I, I need help. I need money. Money. It's something we all have to think about. It's something we, we can't live without. We go to work so we can make money, so that we can pay our bills, so that we can buy the things that we want to buy, that we need to buy. We go to school so that we can get a job, so that we can make money to pay our bills and buy the things that we want to buy and that we need to buy. Everything we purchase has a price tag, and those prices, it seems, are going up and up and up. Many times we have to think hard about what we purchase because of the price. We've got retirement, we've got health insurance, we've got life insurance, we've got the mortgage, all about money. Not to mention, it's that time of year when we're buying Christmas presents, which means it's that season where we're spending lots of money. Money's going out the door. And all the end-of-the-year opportunities that we have to give and to help out those less fortunate, for me personally, every single ministry and nonprofit that I've ever bought something from or even visited their website, they are sending me stuff asking for year-end donations. Money is the source of many of our toughest struggles in life. And sometimes it's even the cause of strained and broken relationships. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when money will no longer be a thing. The Bible has a great deal to say about money. It seems that the Lord knew that money would be a big part of our lives. The Lord knew that Satan would use money as a temptation in our lives. This past Wednesday here at the church, we looked at the theme of money within the book of Proverbs which has tons to say about money, if you don't already know that. Today, we look at a text in Mark chapter 10 that is about money, and in a sense, it's also not so much about money. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 10, let's read it together. I'm going to read aloud if you will follow along with me in your copy of Scripture, and then we'll be referring back to different verses time and time again. Starting in verse 17, Mark 10. This is God's word. Mark writes... And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. As we journey through this text today, I want to make six stops along the way. Six places we're going to stop and take note of six intriguing and instructive truths that come from the mouth of Jesus here. The first one begins, as you would imagine, at the beginning of our text, verses 17 and 18. Now notice, the man comes up to Jesus, and the first thing he says to Jesus is, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we could focus in on what this man says to Jesus, what must I do? We could focus on that idea that, well, it's intriguing that he he thinks he needs to do something to be saved. But what I want to spend more time on here first is Jesus' reply where he says, no one is good except God alone. Notice that. Why do you call me good? Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say this? We want to understand why one of us might say it. But why would Jesus say this? I mean, Jesus is good. We know Jesus is good. Jesus is the sinless Savior of the world, the sinless sacrifices for the sins of others. He never did anything wrong in his whole life. Why would Jesus reply like this? Indeed, Romans chapter 3 is correct when Paul quotes so many places of the Old Testament and writes in Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later, Paul will say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is absolutely true. There is no one who is good except God alone. Why would Jesus say this, being who he is? The reason, friends, is because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Picture the man asking Jesus this question and Jesus responding in this manner. Interesting you call me good. There's only one who is good. You see what Jesus is getting at here? He's he's implying to the man. Now you, you call me good. Well, there's only one who is good. And he never corrects him. He never says, it's wrong that you called me good. You were incorrect in doing that. No, no, Jesus is implying he is the one who alone is good. He is God incarnate. If you remember back in chapter 2 of Mark, as we studied this book, back in chapter 2, there was a paralyzed man that his friends lowered him down through a hole in someone's roof so that Jesus might touch him and heal him. Jesus is sitting there looking at the man and notices there are Pharisees around. And Jesus knows 
the Pharisees in their hearts. And so Jesus, before healing the man, looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then he knows, he can see into the hearts of the Pharisees, they are all scandalized because they realize only God can forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And we saw there that Jesus was intentionally claiming to be God in the flesh. He was intentionally claiming for himself divinity. And he knew it would ruffle feathers with those who were around him. Well, here he is doing the same thing, only perhaps a little bit more subtle. Notice, after Jesus responds to the man's question of of what should I do, Jesus lists commandments, and then the, the man says in verse 20, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus responds by giving him another one. He first refers to the Ten Commandments that the Lord gave on Mount Sinai, and now he gives his own commandment. He adds to God's commands. There is only one person in the world who could legitimately do that, to add his own command as a requirement to enter eternal life. And that's God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so, why does Jesus say what he says to the man? Why does he say, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's because he is the one good God in the flesh. Jesus is claiming to be God in front of this man, the only one who is good. But notice also the conversation that Jesus and the man have about eternal life. What good deed must I do, Jesus? to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' response is not what many of us would think. If someone came up to me and said, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I might say something back to them like, well, you can't do anything. You, you can't do enough to make God let you into heaven. You cannot be saved by your own good works. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It's not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. That's perhaps how I would respond. And Jesus responds by saying, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. You know the commandments. Keep the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Why does Jesus respond in this way? I think it's telling that he, he says to this man, this and not what I would have said. Now, is what I would have said wrong? Quoting Ephesians chapter 2 about how we cannot be saved by our works. No, that's good and right. Here's why both responses are legitimate. Because there's actually two ways to get to heaven. Did you know that? There is not just one way to get to heaven. There are two ways to get to heaven, brothers and sisters. Two ways. You can get to heaven by one of two ways. I'll call them the way of the law and the way of grace. There are two ways to get to heaven. The way of the law is one way. The way you get to heaven through the law is by obedience. But I'm here to tell you there's an important detail. It has to be perfect obedience. Perfect obedience all the time. Galatians 3 verse 10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And so that is a way to heaven. It it is. It's a legitimate way to heaven. Through the law, through obedience to the law. But the only way you can do it is through perfect obedience for an entire life, never messing up once. Indeed, there was only one who has ever been saved through that way. 
There's only one who has ever attained eternal life through his obedience to the law. That is the perfect one, the only one who is good, Jesus himself. But there's another way, another way to be saved, the way of grace. This is for all of those who cannot attain salvation through the first way. My late seminary professor, Dr. Jack Cottrell, used to explain it like this. There are two ways to get to heaven, the way of the law and the way of grace, and both ways ways have rules. There are rules in each way. So let me give you the, the two rules in the way of the law. The way of salvation by the law, there are two rules. The rules are break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Keep the commandments, escape the penalty. It's very simple. We understand that, right? Break the commandment, you suffer the penalty. But keep the commandments, you escape the penalty. Very simple. That's the way of the law. The only problem is all of us have broken the commandments. And there is only one in that final category of keeping the commandments and escaping the penalty. But then there is the way of grace. And there are two rules also in the way of grace, and they are the exact opposite of the way of law. In the way of grace, the rules are this. Break the commandments, escape the penalty. Keep the commandments, suffer the penalty. Break the commandments and escape the penalty. This is the scandal of grace. That God offers grace to those who have broken his commandments. That God offers a way out and a way to escape the penalty for those who have broken his commandments. His grace is too wonderful for us to to, to even give words to. Because we all have broken God's commandments and all of us through Christ can escape his penalty. But just as in the way of the law, in the way of grace, there is only one in that second category. Keep the commandments and suffer the penalty. It sounds extraordinarily unfair, does it not? It's exactly what it is. Keep the commandments and suffer the penalty. For Christ kept every commandment And in the end, he suffered the penalty for each one of us who have broken God's commandments. That, my friends, is the way of grace. And so here we see Jesus initiate conversation with this rich young man in the way of the law, by keeping commandments. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to show the man the impossibility of keeping the commandments. The the man actually replies and says, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, we we, we know that's not true. No one has kept all of the Ten Commandments from their youth. Now, we, we have to leave room for what this man could be implying. What he could be saying is, teacher, I've, I've, I've tried to honor God's commandments all of my life. From my youth, I have lived a life of honoring God's commandments. That it could be what he's saying. He could have a genuine, sincere heart here. He might not be lying, but we know the reality of it is this. None of us have kept the commandments. All you got to do is go through the Ten Commandments and every single one of us fails. Every single one of us stands condemned if all you do is go by the Ten Commandments. And there's much more than that, brothers and sisters. There's much more than that. And so, Jesus presents the way of the law. But my friends, praise God that there is another way. The way of grace. And that we we are not judged by our ability to keep the commandments. 
Now, the third place I want to stop and camp out for just a moment here in our text is verse 21. This is so intriguing, and it's the only place that we find this. Remember, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes we have parallel accounts of the same event. And in in the other accounts of this conversation with the rich young man, we do not get this detail that we get here in Mark. It's only in Mark, verse 21, that we see Jesus looked at him and loved him. Do you see that? Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. What Jesus is about to say to this man is an act of love. Understand that. What he is about to do, what he's about to say to this man is an act of love. Jesus gives this rich young man a commandment that he knows will cause the man to turn away. And it was out of love. It was loving for Jesus to do this. Now some might say, but if Jesus loved him, if Jesus loved him, shouldn't he have helped this man to follow him? Shouldn't he have made it easier for this man to follow him? Why would he do something that he knows would turn him away if he loved him? How can it be love to turn him away? You see, Jesus loved him by exposing his idol. He loved him by exposing his idol. The one thing that was in the way of him truly coming to God. You see, sometimes loving a person means helping them to face a hard truth. Sometimes loving a person means helping them to face a hard truth. Picture a doctor, if you will, with a patient sitting in his examination room. The doctor has just stepped out to examine the results of all of the tests that have been run on this man. And the doctor sees clearly, definitively, this man has terminal cancer. He is going to die. He is going to die in a matter of months. His cancer is spread and it is terminal. And the doctor thinks to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back in that examination room and I'm going to tell this man, everything looks good. It looks great. Go live your life. Go have a good life. Everything looks good. Be happy. If that doctor were to do such a thing, would that be loving? Absolutely not. It'd be selfish be extraordinarily unloving because it is not loving to avoid the truth with someone even if it is hard 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love rejoices with the truth in Ephesians 4 Paul tells us that we are to speak the truth to one another in love and sometimes the truth is hard to hear Sometimes the truth is hard to hear, but we would rather give someone the truth and give them a chance at being saved than avoid the truth so that everyone has nice feelings in the short term. Friends, it is loving to help someone face up to the reality of God and the reality of eternal life. And so if you care about your family member, if you care about your neighbor, if you care about your friend, if you care about your coworker, love them. Love them and help them to face up to the reality of the coming of the judgment of God, of the return of Jesus, of death that is coming for us all and we know not when. Love them. Jesus loved this man and proceeded to tell him something that turned him away. Why? Because it is loving 
to help someone face up to the reality of God. And it was loving for Jesus to expose his idol. Now, next place I want to stop is in verses 21 through 22 right there, that Jesus says, you you lack one thing. And he says, go sell all you have and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Go sell all you have. Now, when we come to this text as believers, the first question many people have is, does this mean that I have to sell all I have if I want to go to heaven? Is that what this is teaching? Does this mean that that if I don't sell all I have, I won't go to heaven? Not necessarily is the answer. Now, notice how I said that. Not necessarily. What's Jesus doing here? He's exposing the man's idol. He's exposing his idol, the one thing that this man loves more than God. Jesus is going right to the heart and right to what this man loves more than God. He has possessions, he has great wealth, and they have kept this man away from God. So the question for all of us in here today is this. What is your idol? What is your idol? Or you might put it this way. What are you tempted to love more than God? What are you tempted to love more than God? What might keep you away from God? Or think of it this way. If you were on the other side of this conversation instead of the rich young man, if Jesus was speaking to you, how would he put it to you? What would he ask you to give up and then come follow him? Because I'm here to tell you, it wouldn't be something that you would just be like, oh yeah, no big deal. Fine, now I'm ready to follow. Yeah, I I, I obeyed. That was easy. It would not be like that. It would not be easy. Jesus would put it to every single one of us at the place where it was hardest, most difficult. If we were faced with this same question, what would Jesus say to us? What would he ask us to give up to come and follow him? Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Your idol may very well be the same as the rich young man. Your idol may very well be possessions and money, just like this young man. We read this story and we immediately start frantically searching for an excuse to keep our worldly comforts. We do. If we are dangerously honest with ourselves, that's what many of us do immediately. We read the story and we are searching for any excuse we can find why I don't have to give up my stuff. The rich young man did, but surely not me. We are frantically searching for something to ease our conscience about having so much and not giving more. We frantically go searching for something, anything to keep us from having to give up our precious stuff. That's the danger here. In one sense, yes, the truth is Jesus is just exposing this man's idol. And for us, it could be something different. But brothers and sisters, do not use that as your excuse to stay satisfied with being in love with material wealth. Because we can't come to this and say, Well, since there's a possibility that it might be something else, then it's guaranteed for me that it's something else. We have hearts that are so good and so sneaky at justifying what they want. Our hearts are so sneaky 
and good at justifying what we want. And when so many believers, especially in modern-day America and places like this, come to this passage, they're frantically searching for a way out and for a way not to deal with what Jesus actually says. Now let's make it even, even more uncomfortable and go down to verse 23 with me. Verse 23. Because there, Jesus looks around after the young man walks away, sorrowful, choosing his possessions over God. Jesus looks around at the disciples at verse 23 and says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, Riches and wealth make entering the kingdom harder. Full stop, period. We are not moving on to verse 27 yet. We are not going there yet. Riches and wealth make it harder to enter the kingdom. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We need to let the force of what Jesus says hit us. Don't scramble for a reason why this isn't really true. Don't race down in your mind to verse 27. Face up to the reality of what Jesus is saying. If you have wealth, it will be harder for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven than someone who does not have it. Why? Because money and wealth cause us to trust in ourselves and to forget the Lord. God desires people whose hearts are dependent on him. God desires people who are humble. God desires people who are needy spiritually. They need him. God desires people who do not trust in their own sufficiency and their own wisdom. And having wealth makes all of those things more difficult. Having wealth makes all of those things more difficult. Now the other danger here is that wealth and riches, it's relative. It's all relative. So every single one of us can sit in here and and comfort ourselves with the fact of saying, I'm not rich, so that doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich, right? Friends, riches and wealth, they're relative. There are so many people in this world that would look at almost any one of us in this room right now and say, no, you're rich. No, you are are because it's relative you can always find something that's someone that's more wealthy than you You can always find someone that's got more and say i'm not rich and you can always find someone who's worse than you someone who sins more than you someone to compare yourself to so that you don't have to really face up to the lord from your heart we can always find that brothers and sisters but what if What if we faced up to the reality of what Jesus is saying here in our own lives, from our own hearts, with a dangerous honesty? And what if we let it make a difference in our lives? How might it change us? What if, instead of always trying to get a better car, we got a less expensive one? What if, instead of trying to make our house bigger and better and nicer, we downsized so that we could have more money to give away? What if we took one less vacation a year? What if we didn't get the new phone? 
What if we didn't love the things of the world? What if we intentionally lived below our means with more humble and modest things so that we could give more away and not make it harder on ourselves to enter the kingdom of heaven? What if we truly believed that we, we, we could store up treasures for ourselves in heaven that were way more precious way more lasting and way more valuable than any treasures that we could have here on earth. And what if by giving away our treasures here on earth and going without them, what if by doing that we were storing up for ourselves those treasures in heaven? Listen to what 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 9, says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Brothers and sisters, how difficult it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord that verse 27 is there. Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. But friends, do not, do not let your heart seek to justify its treasures and its toys here in this world by jumping all the way to verse 27 and skipping over everything Jesus said before that. Finally, I want to stop in verses 29 and verse 30. To see what Jesus says there. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you notice in verse 30 how he throws in with persecutions? There's a preacher that I listen to regularly who says, it's almost like Jesus says, and here's a a, a side of persecutions, whether you ask for it or not, right? It it just comes with it. This is what comes with, with following Jesus, persecutions. But notice, Jesus is saying this in response to Peter. Peter is saying, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus is saying, God will compensate you for everything that you give up to follow Christ. God will compensate you for everything you give up to follow Christ. Because make no mistake, to follow Christ means giving something up. It means giving something up for every single one of us. If you want to follow Christ, you must give something up. You must renounce the world. You must renounce all that you have, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. You you must renounce your very self. Your, your control over your own life and your self-direction. Following Jesus for every single one of us means giving something up. And Jesus says, God will compensate you for everything you give up to follow Christ. But notice how he says it. It's a wonderful promise. He says, not only will God compensate you for it all in eternity, but God will compensate you for it now, before eternity comes. He says, now in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And so, for example, the single man who gives up family to focus his life and give it over completely to the work of the gospel, 
That man receives a family in the church. The woman who converts from Islam and loses her family because they disown her receives a family in the church. The one who loses their job because they became a Christian receives financial help and opportunities through their church family. Do you notice a theme here? One of the the greatest ways that God compensates us for everything that we've given up to follow Jesus Christ here on this earth is through our church family. Through our church family. He compensates us for everything that we have given away. For everything that we have lost to follow Jesus. But friends, no matter what we give up, on earth, we will receive far more from our Heavenly Father and the inheritance that He has waiting for us in eternal life. There is coming a day when this life will seem a, a flash. It will seem as, as a vapor, a mist that appears and then is gone a few seconds later. There is coming a day then we will look back on this life and think how quickly that went by. Even now, some of us are starting to feel it. Even now, some of us are starting to get the hints of that. Can you imagine how much more we will feel when we have been there with him for thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years, for hundreds of thousands of years, and we will look back on this life. (laughs) 80 years if you live long? 90 years if you live long? What is that? What is that? How quickly it will have passed. Friends, what, what would it look like if we lived here and now with that mindset every day? If we lived as if the stuff of this world does not matter and we used it for the kingdom of God and we spent it and we gave it and we renounced it for the kingdom and we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, building it up. So that when we get there, we are rewarded beyond our wildest dreams. Rewarded with something that will not perish, spoil, or fade. That will not rust. That thieves do not steal. That no one can destroy or take away. All of the stuff here is just stuff. The message here is very simple, brothers and sisters. It's very simple. Don't love the world plead with you, and I plead even with myself right now, do not love the world. We've got a whole world out there that is desperately trying to get us to fall in love with all of its stuff. All the toys, all of the comforts, all of the possessions, and all of the the self-serving joys. Don't love the world, brothers and sisters. Love the next. Don't love this world, love the next one. And work for it and live for it. Because we're going to be there a whole lot longer than we're going to be here no matter where you spend it. Love the next world, not this one. That's the message today. And so at this point, it's a good place for us to end and to pray. Every week here at Columbia Christian, we we want to offer a time for all of us to respond to whatever the Lord has laid on our hearts. So God just spoke to you, now you speak to him. I ask you to spend this next few moments in silent prayer individually, pouring your heart out to God and doing business, if you will, with him. And then after we each do that for a few moments, we'll come back together and we'll have a time of invitation 
where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. But for the next few moments, let's all pray.